Well, good morning again. I'm glad you're here, everybody, in the room, online. Uh, We are nearing the end of this series called The Story of the Bible, and I know it's probably seemed like it's been a long, long series, Uh, but what we've attempted to do is to connect the big picture dots of the story of God so that we understand clearly who God is and how we actually have a relationship with him. So what we've tried to do is take 15 centuries of Bible writing and try to put that into 15 weeks of teaching. So um, last week, we talked about the beginning of this thing called the church. And we focused a lot on the who, that there was a guy named Saul who became the most... I guess you would say unlikely and at the same time influential person that could possibly have been chosen to kind of lead and launch this community of believers called Christians. So when you, when you heard last week that Paul hated the church so much and he persecuted the church so violently You have to know that when someone like that becomes a follower of Jesus and actually becomes the primary spokesperson and leader of the movement, people definitely wanted to know what he was going to say. So today we're going to move a little bit more from the who was leading to how this thing actually launched as a movement. There's a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark, and he wrote a book, which I love, called The Rise of Christianity. One thing I love about it is he was writing, but not from a cheerleading perspective, because when he wrote about this, he was agnostic. Uh, He did not claim to be a Jesus follower, but he was telling the story, and he asked this question. How did a tiny, obscure, messianic movement on the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classic paganism? and become the dominant faith of Western civilization. Uh, Darren read a scripture last week that I kind of want to remind you of, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples right before he leaves the world, and this is essentially the, the mandate or what they were expected to do to carry forth his mission. And he says to them, the Holy Spirit will come with power upon you and you will be my witnesses. You're going to tell people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But the truth of the matter is that was not what happened when these first disciples, these first followers heard and began following Jesus in Jerusalem. The truth is, it got stuck. They, they stayed right where they were. So all these Jewish people had come literally from all over the world to this festival in Jerusalem called Passover. They had all come, and it was a week-long festival that they came to, and this specific year when they came, they witnessed the most extraordinary thing that could ever be seen, and that was they saw the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of a man named Jesus. 
And they became compelled with this thing called Christianity, and they loved it. And they wanted to stay right there together with all the other people who were Jesus' followers, and they did. So it didn't go from Jerusalem to the province to the next province and to the ends of the world. It stayed stuck because they loved the company and the community of these other Jesus followers. But God, being the God that he is, chose a very unlikely way for his mission to be accomplished. Just like he chooses really, really unlikely people, sometimes he chooses really, really unlikely methods. My guess is you might have actually even seen that at some point in your life where somehow a tragedy or something that was extremely difficult for you became something that caused momentum and took you to a place where you never would have been. And God sort of orchestrated those events. I think God does the same thing in a, in a unique way here. And you can see if you go to a few chapters forward, instead of Acts 1.8, go to Acts 8.1. You see where there's some clarity given on how God does this. It says, Saul, remember that's who Darren talked about last week, who becomes Paul, agreed with the killing of Stephen, a great wave of persecution began that day. And sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And we know that continued on to the ends of the earth. So these people have witnessed the public execution by this man named Saul of a very well-known Christian follower. And when they saw this man literally stoned to death before their eyes, a shockwave went through this community of believers called Christians, and they literally decided, now it's time to go back home. <laughs> now we're ready to leave Jerusalem, and they did. So these small pockets of people who had become believers and followers of Jesus, even though they were scattered, they continued to gather together in small groups wherever it was that they lived. Then comes Paul. So this man, Saul, who had been this terrible persecutor, now becomes this primary spokesman, and he's launching Christianity, and he goes to key cities worldwide, city to city, meeting with these people who are Jesus' followers, and he begins to put together this thing called the church. These people had been bound together forever, so when he went to a city, it was easy to find some place where they were meeting together, praying and singing and sharing communion together. He finds them, and he begins this process that we call church planting, where he puts some structure to the chaos. So Paul essentially spends his time on these journeys he spends time focusing on retelling them the good news about Jesus. He focuses on explaining to them how they could actually grow and develop in their faith. And he also spends time establishing leadership in these churches so that they could continue to thrive. So 
I just want to stop for one second and kind of talk about how these letters of instruction, these letters that were written by Paul and the other apostles, how they sort of fit into the story of the Bible. So remember that the Bible is, we keep saying the Bible is much more a library than a book. Um, I mean, there are 66 books. It's all in one cover, but 66 books, but only some of them are actually books that share a narrative, the storyline. So in the New Testament, from the time that Jesus comes, there are five books in the New Testament that essentially give us the storyline. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus, of course. But when Jesus dies and is resurrected and we begin the story of what happens next, that part of the story is essentially encapsulated in the book of Acts. And this is the book that tells the story of how this man named Paul begins traveling throughout the world and the work of the apostles through the Holy Spirit to start these churches and these thriving Jesus communities. So he goes city to city, finding these groups and the community of believers and setting up churches. So these letters, if you're reading, are not part of the story, but if you looked at the book of Acts, they would be inserted in. So Paul would go to churches like churches in Rome or Corinth or Thessalonica. And after he left, because typically he might only spend a few weeks or maybe a few months in any one place, after he had kind of put the church in order, he would continue to have leadership and influence by writing letters back to these churches. So when you couldn't be face-to-face, it wasn't really online church, but it was a letter that was written so that his influence and leadership could continue to steer and guide the churches. So you would think that the people who had felt so compelled with the Jesus story and had given their life to him that they wouldn't lose sight of who Jesus really was. You, you would think that they would be able to keep that clearly in front of them that at one point they had said, Jesus, I give everything in my life to you. It is you who pays for those sins. And I know I want this life of freedom. You would think that people would not forget that, but they did and they do. To be really honest with you, that, that's one thing that I wish personally, had been much different for me in my faith journey. You see, when you get that mixed up about the, the, the idea of who God is and who we are in relationship to him compared to what we do in our life, when you get those things turned around, it can really, really mess things up. And so for me, I can say, I knew that when I was baptized, that washed away everything in my past, but I didn't quite grasp the whole picture because I kind of felt like after that I was on my own. So any given day, I could be going along just fine, sort of safe in the arms of God, so to speak. And then I would do something really, really stupid, really stupid. And I had this wave and this feeling of guilt and I felt as if I had sort of been literally tossed over to the other side, over the big wall, and now Satan's got me. You know what I mean? And at this point, my feeling is I've got to do a bunch of really, really good stuff to make up for that, 
Or I at least have to say a quick prayer of forgiveness because otherwise I'm going straight to hell if Jesus comes back or I get hit by a bus. So what had happened is the faith that essentially was supposed to be driving my life became fear. And there was this constant feeling of never feeling as if that good news about Jesus was the foundation of every decision and everything that I was doing in my life. There was still this lostness in the feeling. And it took a while for me to understand that I don't obey and do good things so that I can be accepted by God. I am accepted by God as a child of his. And because of that, I'm gonna do things in response to it. So as Paul is writing to these people, as he's writing letters, one of the things, just like when he's with them in person, he consistently reminds them of the good news about Jesus. And that is the foundation of how he wants them to develop and grow in their faith. So literally, when Paul was writing his letters, he essentially had two parts to each letter. One Almost every letter began with a theological truth. He would say, this is what's true about God and what he wants for you. This is the truth. And the second part of the letter would be, and so this is what you do in response. This is how you live because you are loved unconditionally. So Paul not only said some tough stuff, but it was very demanding stuff in his letters. When he's telling these people, it was kind of, this is really what you have to do. But I think what Paul wanted as much as anything was for them to put one phrase in their mind, put one phrase before every command or everything that they were told to do. And that was, because you are loved unconditionally, live like this. So when Paul says things like, do everything without complaining, I think what he means is, because you are loved unconditionally, do everything without complaining. Because you are loved unconditionally, husbands love your wife. Because you are loved unconditionally, be patient with everyone. Because you are loved unconditionally, be thankful in any kind of circumstance. Because you are loved unconditionally, be ready to help God's people when they are in need. Because you are loved unconditionally, never take revenge. And because you are loved unconditionally, use the gift that you've been given to serve the other people who are a part of your faith community. Don't ever forget, I think Paul was saying, don't ever forget that God loves you no matter what. The other thing that Paul did, besides this retelling of the good news and helping people know how to live out their faith, was to establish leadership of people who could be good examples and to help resolve problems that came up in the church. You know, it doesn't matter if you're talking about 
government or education or business or your house or my house or the church, whatever it is, there's not very much that trumps the importance of leadership. And I think that that's the reason that Paul spent so much time establishing leadership when he was meeting these people throughout the world and also when he was writing these letters. So I remember it was really only a few months ago. Um, Lindsay and I were having conversations with the leadership team here at Westridge. And, um, you know, we'd had meetings and they'd shared what's happening at Westridge and what kind of work needed to be done. And we'd gone back and forth and sharing our stories and telling all kinds of things. But there was a, a specific meeting where we were here in the cafe, right here behind us. And we were having a conversation. And I remember there was this this moment where I realized, yeah, there's, there's something here. Because as we were talking, besides talking about all the stuff that happens at, at Westridge, they began to tell personally the stories of how they had been impacted at Westridge. So, I mean, people, you know, Danielle Zapchink and Lisa Willenberg and John Doyle and these, all these people that or the Westridge leadership started talking about how their lives had been transformed right here. Now, Lindsay and I, we already knew we loved Westridge. We're thinking, yeah, we, we want to come here, but we want to know, is this what God wants for us? And when I heard the Westridge leaders talk about how they had felt this compulsion to be a part of the mission and the ministry here because of their own lives being changed, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm seeing it. I think it's hard to, under, to overestimate the power of leaders when they are all in. When they're highly invested, they got skin in the game and they care deeply that we as a church are accomplishing our mission of connecting people to God. That wasn't lost on Paul. That's the reason that he spent time leading and teaching and talking about leadership. And so the answer, kind of begin to wrap this up. If, if we could say, what is the answer to how a tiny, obscure little messianic movement way back when now has billions and billions of followers, I think it's safe to say that these letters of instruction have had an incredible impact on the faith of billions of people. Because when Paul and Peter and James and all those guys were gone, their letters continued and still continue to this day to influence your life and mine and the establishment of churches throughout the world. It's hard to understand that for 2,000 years, these letters of instruction, along with God's Holy Spirit, have given the church the power to do what it does in transforming lives throughout the world. You know, you shouldn't kid yourself because Paul's letters are sometimes pretty tough to understand. Some is very direct. But some parts are a little bit tough to grasp. And as a matter of fact, the Apostle Peter, one of his teammates, 
The apostle Peter said in one of his letters that is in the Bible, you know, I hate to say it, but some of Paul's letters are really, really hard to understand. So it was known, it was acknowledged that there was some tough stuff, not just in the demands, but even in understanding them. But I want to say this. I believe that there is a foolproof way. There is a foolproof way for people to actually see the God of the Bible and to see what it means to live out your faith as a part of a faith community called Jesus followers. And I think it is by the way that we actually live. There are some verses in 2 Corinthians that I think sort of encapsulate that idea. Here's what they say. Your lives, your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is not written with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. I think the truth of the matter is this. The best preaching usually happens without words.